0: Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, professor of health psychology and a mental
1: health researcher at the University of Glasgow. And I'm Craig, a filmmaker and content creator at MQ Mental Health Research.
0: And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems,
1: and we hope to do so in a way that is accessible to all. In this episode, we speak to occupational therapist and mental health advocate Jenny Okolo. Jenny has a strong background in the criminal justice sector, culminating in her delivering a TED talk about showing empathy for those who have committed a serious crime. In this conversation, they discussed empathy in the criminal justice sector, understanding neurodiversity, and ensuring well being in the workplace.
0: Welcome to the latest episode of MQ's open mind. Craig and I are delighted to welcome today, we've got another fantastic guest. We've got Jenny Alculo. and Jenny is an occupational therapist in mental health, particularly in the forensic end of things in criminal justice. And we'll be hearing a lot about that today. But Jenny's also a speaker and we'll hopefully touch on your um, fantastic TED talk from like last year, 2022, I think. Yes. And, and also is founder of SASA, clarification from jenny means it's, it's healing in uh, in japanese we'll be hearing a lot about all of those and more so welcome to our podcast jenny and thanks for coming
2: thank you so much for having me i'm really excited to, to be having this conversation
0: brilliant so well what we try and begin in the podcast is really take people through a sort of narrative or a journey or your mental health journey so do you want to take us back to sort of where it all began, so to speak, in terms of, because obviously you've moved into, into mental health over your career.
2: Yeah, so I suppose my interest in, in mental health stemmed from growing up um, on an estate and seeing a lot of people you know maybe walking in the streets my neighbor in particular who had uh, a mental health condition Um, also personal experience in terms of like my uncles and family who had undiagnosed uh, mental health conditions like we always knew that there was something not quite right in a sense of an overt observation of mental illness and I was always sort of curious as to how people maybe got to that point what causes it you know why is it that some People are diagnosed. Some people aren't. So that curiosity led me into wanting to to find out more about mental health, and you know, knowing that I wanted to, I wanted to have a career um, that was health related, um, but I wasn't sure, you know, in particular what kind of field. And I remember, like, this is it's quite funny actually. A couple of years ago, this is when Waterloo Road. I don't know if anyone knows about the show Waterloo Road was quite yeah. popular back in my time. Um, <laughs> And um... you're so old, Jelly. Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, I hope people will remember this but there was a particular um, episode uh, where one of the characters I think his name was Josh um, was experiencing a psychotic episode and they touched that was the first time I heard about schizophrenia mm-hmm. and they touched on you know how it began for him I think he was on drugs and there was several different factors that contributed to his mental health declining and I just found it so fascinating I, was, I thought oh wow there's actually a name for you know these type of conditions and then you know whilst I was in school I did my I um I did a shadowing experience for one day at a psychiatric hospital that wasn't too far from my house. I, I suppose that's where the doors opened for me. Like I was thinking, okay, this is where I want to work in. I managed to shadow an occupational therapist and I saw the way that she was working with the patients um, and it had a good balance of the clinical aspect, but also the creative and making sure that the care was very individualistic. So in a nutshell, that's how my interest started and how I sort of began to, to learn more about the field that I wanted to get into.
0: To. Yeah, no, great. So, go just come back a wee step there. So. Where, where did the placement come from then so did you say at school
2: yeah so this was in sixth form yeah. um, my school had links with hospitals like king's college and Maudsley. so Maudsley is a psychiatric hospital that i was able to spend a day at of course a day is you know it's quite short but it was enough to make me realize that this was the area that i wanted to go into i was i believe yeah I, I was actually one of the only students who wanted to go into that field so for me it was quite difficult especially when it came to applying for university nobody knew what occupational therapy was I would say even now like I'll say maybe now more so occupational therapy is being more known about but back in my time it was oh you're ever going to become a nurse or a doctor if you want to work in the healthcare industry so it took a lot of you know me doing my own research and going out of my way to maintain those links that I did at the hospital and,
0: and when I think back to when I was at school I had no idea I don't, know, I don't think I'd even heard of an, well probably I'd heard of occupational therapy but I didn't know much about it. Um, I mean, I, I do think definitely now the profession has got is more established.
2: Yeah, it's definitely getting more established. I think some people do confuse it with well, either physiotherapy or yeah. occupational health. So I do find myself having to explain sometimes, you know, what occupational therapy is, uh, which is all about supporting people um, with their independence. Uh, we work in both mental health and physical health community. So you will see us everywhere. But we are part of the NDT um, in most cases. And work in clinical um, type of settings and, and also prisons, which I'm sure.
0: Yeah, <laughs> we're be- going to get on to the prison. So, so yeah, yeah. Uh, occupational therapy, a key role in whatever, in multidisciplinary teams, as you say, MDTs. But then, so in terms of where you'd most find occupational therapists in, in mental health, is what in child and adolescent services and adults rather than forensic, I'm assuming, or cl- the criminal justice?
2: Yeah, so you'll mainly find. Um, OTs so occupational therapists in um, CAMS so mm. working with young people um, in hospital settings or in the community as well and you know in adult and o- older adult sorry settings hospital settings and community settings Um, I'll say also schools as well there are a lot of um, occupational therapists working in paediatrics and again with young people there were so many and that's also one of the main reasons why I chose this particular career because I knew that if I got bored of you know one area that I was in I could always there were so many options for me to to go into that piqued my interest
0: and so so in terms of the training for occupational therapy so I assume the training it, it, it covers both physical health and mental health and then mm-hmm. do you go down a specialization in mental health or or not or and then how do you maybe can you tell us how you then moved into the criminal justice system
2: Yeah. So um, occupational therapy, you you study it for three years. If you're doing the undergraduate, um, you can do a master's, but that would be two years and you are dual trained. So you are uh, trained in physical health and mental health. So everything, Uh, you do your anatomy, physiology, all that kind of stuff. I do know that now that Uh, this wasn't available during my time but they do have apprenticeship schemes now so you can um you can work and you can obtain a degree at the same time it does take a little bit uh, longer but at least it adds a bit more flexibility so when I was doing my degree I went to Oxford Brookes University it was a combination of you know coursework exams but the main thing was placements Mm -hmm. um which is really important because that's how you get to hone in on your skills and get to kind of feel out what area suits you best so my first placement it was in post-polio the post-polio clinic again I had no clue about this so uh, (laughs) you know um, you know it was actually a split place in post-polio and neurology uh, which was great but I kind of knew that I didn't really want to go into that physical health um, sector Um, and then my second placement and that was my first indication of you know working in the criminal justice system alongside the NHS was in a secure hospital. Um, it was a medium secure hospital. And again, like initially I did have my reservations because I, I did research what a secure hospital means or kind of clients you, you tend to work with, but it actually ended up being such an amazing placement for me. And That's when I I suppose that's where it began in terms of understanding that even within mental health, there are so many different areas that you can get into. And in my third placement, because I really enjoyed my second placement, my third placement, they sent me to a high secure um, hospital called Broadmoor. And again, I did have my reservations, but it was I would say it was by far the best experience i would ever had because it challenged my it challenged my initial assumptions. That I had about you know these type of settings and working with criminals or people who had had like long-standing forensic history. But when I went in there, of course, you do meet patients who are very very unwell and very high risk. But I was more so intrigued about the the type of work that was happening to support these patients. So you know I was part of the OT team. I was seeing the different groups. They had a recovery college. You know I was working with a particular patient who obviously on the supervision who was doing these amazing drawings and I thought oh my gosh like why doesn't the world know about this like why isn't this in the papers so it was such an amazing experience like just seeing the journey and and seeing that there is actually hope for people who are you know even extremely unwell or extremely high risk so I, I suppose that's where it began for me like I said at that moment once once I finished I said I wanted to work in forensic mental health
0: yeah and and so then you've graduated
2: yes and,
0: and so so where are you where where what sort of jobs have you been doing since that
2: yeah so I graduated um and I um had the opportunity to go back to my second placement which was actually under the same trust so to work in um, the medium and low secure services as an occupation therapist I was given an award to to look after from the OT aspect and again it was such a it's a you know, it was such a great experience for me. I also spent some time working as a care coordinator in the community. So, um, that's what I mean in the sense of as an occupational therapist. There's so many different opportunities to yeah. work in different settings. And then I, I sort of missed. I, I really did miss the forensic um element. And I said, let me just jump in and work in a prison. Um, <laughs> so um, yeah, and and that wasn't. That was a very interesting experience. And also working in mental health, it can be just challenging in in general, even as a health professional, um, because you you might hear things, you might see things that might be triggering. But working in in a prison was also the same as well because it's not a hospital setting. Um, You are working with a regime that's not necessarily uh clinical. And you know, we were a small, we are a small team. Um, I remember there were only three of us in the OT team. And I was the the manager there. And you know, even you know, we didn't have like a, a clinic or anything. We had to go into the wings. And as you can imagine, the wing it, it's very narrow and you know the rooms are often not adequate enough for you to have like you know sessions and to assess people. So I found time and time again there were so many different obstacles for me to face. So that was challenging but it did teach me to you know be more flexible and how to work with the different agencies like you know the governor's there and have conversations to try and enforce change um so i actually managed to secure a budget to redevelop the day center so the Uh day centre was it looked horrible like it was all blue there were barely there was barely any equipment in there and you know with um, the permission from the governors and the support from them uh we were able to, you know, hire equipment and furniture and just make it a more therapeutic space for the people that we were working with.
0: That's fantastic. And so thinking that of the, the obviously you've worked obviously in the prison setting, high secure meeting secure hospital setting, we all one of the things that often comes up in our podcast are the myths around or misunderstandings around mental health. So with your experience in, in those settings, What do you you think are the sort of key myths that are still persistent in the context, I suppose, of mental health, criminal justice? Yeah,
2: I would say that the myths are still there is they're dangerous. This is the end for them. There is no way out. I work with a lot of patients and even you know prisoners as well who say well this is it for me I've got this condition got this sentence and you know what do I do next but actually there is still there is still hope like as long as you're willing to engage with the program another myth is that you know medication is just it's just medication that they need just give them uh, medication and they'll be fine but actually there is so there are so many different factors that contribute to um, you know someone's mental health declining to the point where they might need uh, psychological help or vocational support which is where I would then specialize in and like I said with mental health it's it's a it's an entire spectrum um as well so of course I've I you know I tend to work with those on maybe the more extreme end of things but you know if you look at the story and how they came to that point a lot of the time it started with something very small and because they maybe couldn't get the right support or you know anything like that it then sort of snowballed into to the situation that they're in now where it's you know they've committed a crime or they're in a space where they've you know they're high risk and you know whatnot so there there are so many different myths but you know I do feel like especially in the recent years there is because of the information that's being put out there, correct information by professionals and people talking about um, their own lived experiences, I think that's definitely dismantling a lot of those myths that were previously um, out there.
0: Yeah, no, really interesting. I think you had a really important point about the role of early intervention as well and escalation of, of as you described it really nicely, about something maybe small initially and then that thing snowball you don't get the support and help that you need and, and often especially if you're, if you're starting off from a position of uh, disadvantage, um, I think it just things just escalate. Maybe that sort of brings me on this sort of a slight tangent, but is related. You delivered a fantastic TED Talk last year on empathy. So huge congratulations on that. It's a really, a really engaging. Craig and I both really enjoyed it. So but can you tell us about how the, how the TED Talk, Danny, came about? And then... For those who haven't seen it, and obviously I encourage everybody, just to Google your name, and you and you don't even have to add empathy. Just Google your name, and you will find it. Yeah. Um, so, 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 how can and sort of a sort of brief presser summary of your message in that?
2: So, the the talk came from. So, you know, when I started working in forensic mental health, I was met with a lot of questioning especially from family and friends, saying, why would you work in this type of setting? Like, that's, mm-hmm. too, that's too dangerous or, you know, they're too far gone. And again, because of the lack of education around mental health, and especially when I started working in prison, mm-hmm. my goodness, that was a whole entire conversation in itself. I suppose I started thinking about, you know, why is it that I've not been able to, why is it that I have a different viewpoint? of working in these type of settings with the type of client group that I am working with. And it's I sort of boiled it down to two things, obviously education, which through my experiences, so in work experience, you know, doing a bit more research, I have the privilege of having more of an educational background in this type of area. But then also I've been able to sort of grow and um, develop empathy for the people that I've been working with because I work with them in such a close proximity so I realized those were the two um, main areas and I always would say to people that I'm not especially when you're working in prisons it can be quite a sensitive subject for a lot of people for various reasons whether it's a you know high profile case and you know whatnot but you know I always say that it's not necessarily about the crime that had been committed with my role I'm more concerned about how did this person especially if they come through Um, you know, the inpatient uh, sort of route and potential mental health condition has been identified. How has this person gotten to this point? Mm -hmm. And how can we support them? Because um, that's another thing in terms of um, when somebody is being released back into the community, we also need to think about the kind of support they require so that they don't come back. So my message was to sort of show people that there is a bit more nuance to these type of stories that you hear, these type of high profile crimes that you might see. And it's more about being willing to listen. You yeah. might not understand the full story. And sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm like, well, this doesn't really make sense, but I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to try and understand and try and have a different view on things. And I also wanted to sort of break it down to the point where, especially when it comes to mental health, that anyone could find themselves in this position as well. And also highlighting the point that there are so many different factors, like environmental factors, that, you know, education where things might have been missed, you know, the lack of information in certain communities. And from a Nigerian background, mental health is barely, I mean, maybe now a little bit, but there's still a long way to go in terms of it being taken as seriously as uh, physical health because they don't have that empathy towards the person who has a mental health condition. So, yeah, those are the main areas that I wanted to focus on. And I was convicted to, strip it back and just boil it down to to empathy and getting people to you know show a bit more consideration for for everyone around them as well and also for themselves too
1: yeah. why do you think there's a lack of empathy when it comes to um people who have committed crimes
2: I think because people go straight to the crime that has been committed and and that's that's another thing it's like i understand it and if I was you know the victim or if I was like if I was affected personally by some of these crimes I would be thinking the same thing so i I do you understand it? But I think people sort of miss it's almost like they they miss everything about this this person or this case because they don't have the information and they go straight to okay, this person committed a crime, they should go to prison, and that's their punishment. But I I personally don't feel like we can continue to do that, but if we don't get to the root and to the source of why people commit these crimes some people especially those who have an undiagnosed mental health condition or they have a mental health condition it's just going to be an ongoing cycle so lack of education around especially the the statistics around mental health within the prison system a lot of you will find this like the prison that I was in and also most prisons you have a thousand plus inmates and the waiting list that I had as well were over a hundred Mm-hmm. So that goes to show you how many people were, you know, needing input in terms of their mental health, but because of resources and also it tends to be, you know, they tend to be diagnosed or seen like at a later stage in life as well, which makes it quite hard and difficult as well. So it's something that I definitely had to change in my mindset as well. And that came from working in this type of setting. But I do understand why people might not necessarily have much empathy. Uh, but once they do hear the story and, you know, why, it might give them a bit more clarity.
0: And, and what's the re- reaction been to the po- to the TED Talk?
2: It's been really positive. And I've spoken to, it even from family as well, like, and, and friends, just actually understanding, oh, okay, it doesn't actually sound as bad as, because obviously the connotation behind prison or crimes, like, is, um, you know, they've got their own mindset of it, but it's been really positive. And also service users as well, like especially in the community who, who sort of feel that they've been given like an opportunity to sort of be seen in a different light. Mm-hmm. Um, as well and also my fellow um, health workers as well who work in these type of settings who are then able to sort of even use that talk to show that to their friends and family to give them a better understanding as to why they work with these people and that it's not just as straightforward as um, you know just working with prisoners yeah. or just working with people who commit crimes yeah
0: no true it's very true so one of the things we often try and do in the podcast is bring it back to research because obviously we're a research charity so in that vein then so if we were able to give you all the money in the world right (laughs) well what what would be your priorities do you think what sort of research questions do you think we should be addressing
2: perhaps looking at you know like i mentioned before the the root causes Mm -hmm. so i'm i'm also quite passionate about um you know going into schools i've worked with prus so pupil referral units As well, you know, where, you know, challenging behaviour young people tend to go to and actually, yeah, get into the roots of, you know, why certain conditions, especially even neurodevelopmental conditions as well, which is also an area that I touched in my talk um, that often not identified at earlier stages and perhaps maybe misconstrued as challenging behaviours where actually it could be they could be autistic or have ADHD or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the main, that's one. And then also bridging the gap between the services and the community, especially when it comes to accessing people of different cultural backgrounds, because especially working in prisons, I found, um, and again, there are stats to, to back this up where a high proportion of black men um tend to be the ones in prisons um, and even um, section under the Mental Health Act as well. So speaking to families and just people in the community of various different backgrounds to educate them about mental health, provide them with the language, especially when it comes to seeking help as well. So I think a lot of research... I, I would want a lot of research to be um had into that um and also I think that would definitely um support even us as health workers when we are working with families and individuals who have a very different understanding of what mental health is or might not know what mental health is to just get them yeah get them to have the right language to be able to access that support um, and then also, like I said, in schools as well, which is I think that's where it usually begins in yeah. terms of identifying this,
0: yeah, no great suggestions. I mean, because trying to use that basic science and really to inform all aspects of sort of treatment care, early intervention, and so on. You touched on there the obviously neurodiversity. so mm-hmm. in terms of the interventions that you use that you and your colleagues use in the prison or in the Secure setting. So, what what are the effective interventions that are that you you draw upon? And, and sorry, and then are they tailored to people with ADHD, autistic people, or whatever, uh, and, and any a whole breadth of other aspects of diversity as well?
2: Yes. Um. So, I can give an example of you know uh, working in prisons, and like I said initially, it's very restrictive in terms of even what you can bring in and um having to go into the wings. So there were quite a lot of prisoners who had a, a formal diagnosis and even an informal diagnosis of um, autism or DHD or had um sensory um sensitivity, especially when it becomes really noisy on the wings. And the rooms are incredibly small. So uh, what I did, um, myself and my colleague, we created like sensory packs that they could either create in a day centre or we could bring that to them, to the wings, just as a way to support them in that sort of interim setting. And that was met with a lot of positivity, even from the prisoners themselves, a lot of requests for, you know, our small sensory packs to be made. And also we would get training um, in terms of the officers. So supporting the officers in identifying these things as well, even if they just had an inkling, of course, they're not clinicians, but they do have much closer contact with with those clients. It only sort of made sense for them to also be as educated as possible. I know my prison and also the the neighbouring prisons as well in the UK um, have definitely put neurodiversity at the forefront. So what happened in my prison was that they had an entire uh, level of the wing dedicated to putting people there who might have more challenging sort of needs and I thought that was was great because they were able to identify okay this is also causing them maybe more distress being in the wing with you know lots of noise or not having the right support so being a bit more isolated And so we're able to sort of work with the governors in that sense. And, you know, as occupational therapists as well, when you do your training, you sort of, you know, you get to know about different conditions in a general basis. But um, there's a lot of training, specialised training involved. Um, that you can get involved in. So I did the sensory integration training. So I'm a qualified sensory integration practitioner. So I can go in, assess people and provide them with the right interventions to to support them, not just in prisons, but even in the community as well.
0: I suppose it sounds like, well, it's a sort of microcosm of what happens in the sort of community or broader psychiatric setting that, yeah, there are these interventions but trying to get them tailored to the individual needs of, of 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 whatever the client group is in this case autistic or individuals or people with adhd but you're obviously you you do have some flexibility and being able to do that and had some success so far
2: yeah absolutely and i think that's the key not just in in prisons but in general like you have I, I think you've got to be flexible about that approach because even some you know somebody with asd so autism spectrum disorder might react differently to an intervention that somebody else has yeah. so all of our interventions, you know, require us to be flexible to see what works, what doesn't, and you know that requires us to know, get to know, um, our service users.
0: Yeah, it's just obviously a person-centered approach really, isn't it? So the that, other thing just struck me was that. Uh, so what would you hope then, again, in terms of aspirations, how mental health is treated? In the criminal justice system. So, what improvements or changes would you like? To, would you like to see? What would be, you think would be beneficial?
2: Yeah, um, I think especially when it comes to screening prisoners as they first come in, um, having that clinical approach as well. So, having I think you know like an in reach team, for example, um, which you know we had a very. I, I mentioned we have a very small team. Yeah. Uh, compared to like the, a thousand plus. Prisoners that we see were meant to be seen, you know, on a weekly. It's a big
0: ratio. It's a very big ratio. Massive. It's massive.
2: So having more clinicians and healthcare workers be there at the beginning of that process, literally from when they come in the first day. Um, again just to identify those potential needs whether it's for neurodevelopmental conditions or for mental health in general just to make that process much more smoother because you know the worst thing that could happen is somebody comes into prison again they still don't have a formal diagnosis or the right support and you know they get released from prison and the whole thing happens again it's it's, it's about trying to break that cycle so that we prevent any further you know relapse from mm-hmm. the other community and you know god forbid they commit another crime. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: No, no, uh, right. great suggestions there. I think from reading about you, you, you attended the in 2019 the G7 Youth Summit. Mm-hmm. That was and what was that promoting gender equality or any inequal- gender inequal- or trying to tackle gender inequality. Can you tell us a bit about your experience of that?
2: Yes, oh my gosh, I felt that like such a long time ago, but um, it's only, it's only four years ago. Yeah, <laughs> a lot happened.
0: Probably. Yeah, exactly. Pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic. Yes.
2: Yeah, I was part of um the Y7 um, as a delegate, and I was specifically focusing, like you said, on gender inequality. And essentially, you know, the the programme in itself was, you know, looking at policies across the world, but obviously mainly in the UK as well, around, you know, that particular topic. And I was looking at schools and um, how the policies sort of affect, you know, the education system, Um, even career as well one thing that I still remember to this day is just and it's something that I hadn't realized until I um, was on the program was you know looking at how even the curriculum at times it might have changed now but back in my time even when you'd open like a book and especially around careers you would see that maybe the more maternal or like Um, healthcare related subjects had like a a, a woman there and then maybe more like financial had like a a male and there wasn't that sort of representation there and I didn't realize at the time that that was the stuff that I was consuming so yeah I was essentially around you know supporting the policies that advocated for gender um, equality we went to Paris as well you,
0: you were representing the UK weren't you
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I was representing the UK, went to Paris, yeah. spoke to lots of um, governors, um, President Macron too, and trying to develop all these um, policies too. So it was, you know, I was able to even bring in like the healthcare aspect as well, but it was definitely an interesting experience for me, one that I'll never <laughs> forget.
0: Yeah, no, that's yeah. Once, oh, genuinely once in a lifetime type experience, isn't it? Yeah. And actually, I, I said it, I, that was my last question, but I completely forgot to ask you about Sasa. About, uh, they said you find So can you tell us about Sasa and what its mission is, what it's for?
2: Yeah. So, like I said, Sasa means healing, and I suppose it, you know, started off as a project. You know, where I wanted to create a platform. It was a blog at first, uh, where people could talk about mental health experiences, career, and mental health. So, I'm, again, quite passionate about. Uh, well-being in the workplace. So it was only sort of recently that I was able to sort of hone down on, you know, what I wanted SASA to to be and what kind of service I wanted it to provide. So at the moment, we provide clinical um, assessments for, you know, just general sort of mental health assessments, um, neurodiversity assessments. We started off with the sensory profile quiz. And the aim is to sort of bridge that gap, right, between those who are, let's say, on a long waiting list, because there is a long waiting list for a lot of the neurodiversity assessments, um, but then also it can be quite expensive if you go privately so I wanted to bridge that gap um, in terms of providing people with the education in that sort of medium and also I found that especially nowadays with social media there is so much information that's being fed to people and again I get asked quite often like you know what do you think about people self-diagnosing themselves on TikTok for example or you know uh, reading all this information and I I kind of stand in the middle where I think, you know, we need to move with, you know, how society is going. We can't stop it. So I feel like as we as professionals or those who are qualified enough should be able to provide people with the correct information or redirect them to correct resources. So that's essentially what SASA is about. is about supporting people in that sort of medium interim um, sort of um, position and providing people with accessible uh, free resources as well or very affordable assessments that they can use to so wish to go further into seeing what their diagnosis could be. Um, so we're a very small team at the moment, but again, we're literally there's such an influx of requests for certain assessments and it just shows how much of a need there is still out there especially with people having more confidence now to research more about their mental health their well-being
0: and if people want to find out more about SASA where do they go
2: yeah so if you want to find out more you can head up over to our website which is www.wearesasa.com and then you'll be able to do a very short free Um, sensory profile um assessment as well we're also on social media so at we are sasa on instagram and on twitter great
0: great thanks for that and just before we do the last the final two sort of unrelated questions so you've packed a lot in so far (laughs) into your life what's what's your plan what's the plan for the next few years
2: oh that's a good good question I, i definitely want to do more um you know, speaking engagements, going to schools, going in, going into um, communities where they otherwise might not be able to access expert knowledge around mental health specifically. And then I also want to sort of focus a lot more on sasa as well and bringing more people on board and seeing again how we can collaborate with organizations to access um those people who kind of sit on in the middle and support them as much as possible with their mental health and yeah we'll we'll, we'll see i definitely especially around like prison work and you know there's so many organizations like reconnect who um i don't know if you've heard of them but reconnect their organization As part of um, the NHS long-term plan that provides services for those who have been discharged into the community or released into the community from prison, which I think is also an important area that people should focus on, because especially when it comes to accessing jobs and opportunities, that's a whole nother hurdle that a lot of this client group faces.
0: Great, great. We we always try to have two sort of final questions. And so the first one is, what advice would you give your 16-year-old self?
2: I would say the advice would be to be to be patient with myself. And I, I say this because, and I've said this before as well, I, you've seen me do, you know, speaking events and TED Talk and all that kind of stuff. But I used to be, and I still am quite a quiet, introverted person. Um, And I remember, like, when I was younger, I used to think, oh, gosh, I'm, there's no way I could do all these, you know, speaking events or, like, even for me to I remember I, was, I, I got really scared like even in terms of answering a question in class Or well, you remember when they used to get us to read out uh, from a book like I would yeah, always take sure, when yeah. it came to me so uh, yeah I'll tell myself to be patient and reassure myself that I, I would grow into the person I am now and also utilizing my quietness to my advantage and I think that's definitely led me to a place now where you know, I'm able to use that to my advantage because I listen more more than I speak, which is which is fine, especially in the field that I'm in as well, where you're meeting a lot of people, having to listen to a lot of people so um yeah, just be patient. it'll all work out in the end.
0: I think that's a brilliant moment. I can see Craig nodding away. <laughs> so that yeah. describes craig as well i think
1: doesn't it craig yeah definitely but the the only strange thing is that when i was younger i was more uh, vocal i was more able to i was the kid that put his hand up in class I, I did i read in church i read whenever i needed to it's only when i started getting older it's that i started getting quieter which is i don't know it's strange I'd like i work backwards you'd think you'd oh, get oh gain more yeah. confidence with age
2: i guess because now like especially now it's like you know, we're under so much, I don't know if the scrutiny is the right word, but like with social media and you're seeing people's lives and all that kind of stuff. I don't think we had, well, back in my time, social media wasn't really nothing like that. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> and the, the other thing, so Jenny, have you read Susan Cain's book called Quiet? No. The, well, it's, it's really good. It's obviously people, introverts sort people who are quieter yeah. and really how they should rule the world type thing that's not quite what it is but um Susan K it's a great book Uh, um it was a New York New York Times bestseller a few years ago and um she's a new book out now called Bittersweet but um I'm not her publicist but she's (laughs) it's a great book given the uh, conversation we had okay so the last question then we'll let you go is then we asked this again of everybody is so can you think of somebody living or dead who you would love to have a coffee with or dinner with
2: I would say maybe Maya Angelou.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I just, obviously, you know, I've read her books and her poetry as well. And I would just love to know, like, or have a conversation with her. Because I just felt, I just feel like any conversation I would have with her would stimulate my own mind too. Um, So just, yeah just having a really wholesome conversation with with her would would have been great and obviously now I you know I can still read her books and things like that but she's one of the people that I would have loved to
0: yeah I mean an absolute inspirational star that person so he was really amazing really amazing okay well on that really upbeat note I think that, that was a great way great way to end so on behalf of Craig and I Jenny thanks a million for joining us today for a really wide-ranging conversation so I
1: uh, hope our listeners enjoyed it as well
2: Thank you so much for having me,
1: I've really enjoyed this conversation. MQ Open Mind is presented by MQ Mental Health Research, the only organisation that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health. Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated and one day prevented. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think about the podcast. Each review helps us reach a wider audience. Visit mqmentalhealth.org to learn more about MQ and mental health research.